Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. Later on, Dennis Staunton will give us his take on the state of play in the Brexit talks, with the process entering a defining period. But first, it was business as usual in the White House last week. Leaks of an explosive new book by Bob Woodward that seems to offer startling new insights into a chaotic presidency, followed by an anonymous op-ed in the New York Times written by a senior official in the Trump administration, according to the newspaper. The article in particular roiled the administration, leading to the surreal situation of Vice President Mike Pence offering to take a lie detector test to prove he hadn't written it. Donald Trump's presidency has not been short on drama, but the timing of these events just two months before the crucial midterm elections perhaps gives them a different significance. I'm joined on the line by Washington correspondent Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, in recent weeks, we've not been short on scandals, but was there anything specific about last week's revelations that were particularly damaging to Trump or to the Republican Party ahead of the midterms? Well, I think uh, the significance of last week was the fact that uh, Donald Trump is realising that senior people within his administration and people who have left uh, recently um, have got serious doubts now about his presidency and in some cases about his mental health. Uh, some of his aides have suggested in in various books that we've seen come out over the last few months. Uh, So I think that is what's worrying the president now. Um, Just today, Donald Trump Jr. has come out in an interview saying there are now very few people that Donald Trump can trust within his administration. Um, So we now have reports that uh, senior aides have been told to leave their phones, for example, in their offices and not bring them near the uh, situation room for meetings, for example. And we're seeing a real breakdown in trust between Donald Trump as an advisor as he tries to to find out the identity, particularly of this, the person who wrote the uh, the anonymous article in the New York Times, but also who spoke to Bob Woodward. Now, we do know from Bob Woodward's book, uh, some the identity of some of those people, John Dowd, a former legal advisor to Trump, for example, Gary Cohn, Ryan Priebus, the former chief, chief of staff also contributed. So some of those people have left the administration, but he is very concerned about who might be still in there uh, that is speaking to people like Woodward and indeed who may have penned this anonymous op-ed. Now, I know Trump called on Jeff Sessions to investigate who wrote wrote the op-ed. Um, now, that mm. might not happen, but there, there's going to be a, an ongoing effort to, to weed out the culprit, is there not? And, and what and might that do to morale? Yeah, I'm, I think that's, that's one of the problems here. You know, what can the White House do? So in the days after uh, the op-ed uh, was published, Donald Trump at a rally and on Twitter talked about treason. He talked about that these this person needed to be found out and turned into the government. Now, Sarah Huckabee Sanders yesterday on Monday uh, during her press briefing, it was the first press briefing in 19 days here. The press briefings are becoming less and less uh, frequent and significantly it only was announced about 45 minutes before the briefing uh, actually started. So the sentence was hastily arranged. She was coming under a lot of pressure to speak to the press. Um, now she was probed on this uh, saying, you know, um, what, what is the, the administration looking to do about this issue? Um, and she just said that the US Department of Justice would look into the writer's identity, but um, declined to say how they might be held accountable. So she seemed to rule out the possibility of the lie detector tests that were, were could be used. That um, Senator Rand Paul had suggested that, and uh, as I said, Mike Pence had volunteered to undergo one of those, those uh, tests. So she did seem to rule that out. Um, But again, she was kind of ambiguous about what exactly could be done to root out this person and and how they could be held accountable. And this is one of the ironies, I suppose. On one level, Donald Trump is rejecting 
both these uh, reporting sets of reporting uh, as as fraudulent, as fake news, etc. And on the other hand, he is obviously completely obsessed with trying to get to the bottom of, of who spoke uh, to these uh, journalists and, and in the case of the op-ed piece, penned that article. So he's giving it validity uh, at the same time. So, I mean, this is, this is uh, as I say, the kind of double speak that comes from Donald Trump a lot. It is obviously um, really uh, annoying him. He's coming, he's, he keeps referring to the Woodward book on Twitter, uh, but at the same time, he's trying to dismiss it as, as fraudulent and, and really fake news. Obviously, this was an anonymous article. Is, is there a sense that the, sort of the rules of engagement have changed given his, uh, you know, ongoing uh, kind of claims that the, the press is the enemy of the people and, and kind of he's pers- persisted in that line, particularly with the New York Times? And perhaps mm. this is kind of marks almost a, a, a new sort of level of, of engagement, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there are ethical questions about um, the wisdom of, of printing this piece. Uh, the New York Times opinion editor has been on the record saying why they decided to print this piece anonymously. This is very rare when the, the, this would happen. Uh, and only a select, very few number of people within the New York Times know the identity of this writer. And the reporters who cover the White House here, who cover you know US politics in New York, do not know the identity either. So it's a very select uh, group of people. But there are you know questions, journalistic questions about you know people not putting their name to this, uh, and that you know how effective really is it when somebody continues to hide behind an anonymity to take um, to take uh, umbrage with with the president. Uh, and, and what's interesting about the piece too is that this person is saying that. Uh, that a lot of what Donald Trump is doing is good, and that uh, they seem to be real kind of Republicans in that piece. That they, they 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 do support some of the president's agenda. So I suppose there is a question about how far uh, this anonymous author really is standing up to Trump. How much do we trust this kind of this narrator? whose identity we don't know. Is it a reliable witness? Is it a reliable narrator? These are all questions that are thrown up by this New York Times piece. Um, But you're right. I think because relations have come to such, you know, such lows between uh, Donald Trump and particularly the New York Times, I think it has changed things. And Donald Trump himself has consistently argued against this, uh, you know, sourcing, which is is obviously the way journalism works in so many ways. All of us in our paper, papers around the newspaper world, uh, write articles based on anonymous sources. That, that's how stories, how, how people find out things and how uh, stories are broken. Like Watergate, for example, uh, Mr. Woodward's uh, big story in the 70s. So uh, he has been um, railing against this idea of anonymous sources and he seems to, this seems to be the argument of the White House since the anonymous uh, op-ed. And at the rallies last week in Montana and Dakota, uh, Donald Trump repeatedly said during these rallies, these are fake news, anonymous sources, so we can't believe them. And that, unfortunately for critics from Mr. of Mr. Trump, that does seem to be resonating with his supporters, with a support base, at least as, from what we saw at those rallies last week. Now, there were also reports at the weekend of a couple of senior Republicans being worried about uh, Trump's popularity for the midterms. Yeah. Um, and and saying that a, a number of his, the candidates may be vulnerable, including Ted Cruz, is there mm. is there a growing sense of, I suppose Trump as mm. liability, given what's happened in the in the last few months? He obviously has his supporters, but for Republican candidates, um, it's a, it's a difficult balance, isn't it? Mm. I mean, we've of course been here a lot a lot of times. What more can Donald Trump do before his uh, supporters desert him? We've been here when it came to the Access Hollywood tapes, uh, before the election, when it came to his meeting with Putin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But significantly, there have been some polls in recent days that suggest that his popularity may be 
on the wane. A CNN poll in the last couple of days uh, found that the president has a 36% approval rating. That's a six-point drop from a 42% rating last month. Uh, and these polls, that's not just not just one poll. It, this seems to be happening across the board. And various analysis have shown that really the president needs a rating at least in the low 40s, 40% uh, approval rating, if Republicans can uh, have a chance of keeping control of the House. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a big challenge for them. So I think you're right. I think Republicans are uh, are, are now getting worried. There was a meeting, as you referred to there, uh, senior officials, including Mick Mulvaney, uh, an Irish-American uh, who's the head of the budget office here and very, very close, very senior in Trump's administration. He was reported as, 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 as airing these concerns at a private meeting with Republicans over the weekend. They're very worried about some seats. Um, and they're now worried, is Donald Trump be going, going to become a, a liability? Um, and this is really why, you know, the ethics, again, of the Republican Party backing Trump through, through, throughout everything. Um, the reason, really, they have, uh, presumably, is because his approval ratings have been so good. If these approval ratings start to fall and he's seen as liability, as you say, then we could have a situation where, you know, the, the traditional Republicans, if you like, in Congress start standing up to Trump more, start holding him accountable. And possibly, um, even though it, it, it's quite a bit away, if they were to lose control of the House in November and we were in a situation where impeachment proceedings were to be brought against Donald Trump, we could have a situation where some Republicans vote against the president. You know, they're willing to, to stand up to him, particularly if something really serious comes out of the Mueller investigation, which we do need to remember is, is continuing in the background all this time. Now, at the weekend, uh, Barack Obama returned to the fray uh, with with what was a, a highly unusual attack on a sitting president uh, in a speech in Illinois. It did not start with Donald Trump. He is a symptom, not the cause. He's just capitalizing on resentments that politicians have been fanning for years. What can we take from Obama's intervention? And, and can we expect it to uh, rally the party in any way? Or, or? Yeah, this, this is highly significant. Uh, President Obama, who lives here in Washington, actually just around the corner from Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, um, he has kept an extremely low profile since Donald Trump uh, assumed the presidency uh, back in January last year. Um, he obviously made a speech at John McCain's funeral uh, last weekend. Um, John McCain had asked him to speak at that. And that definitely kind of upped his profile, if you like. Um, and then five days later, he came out with this really blistering attack on Trump and the Republican Party. He named uh, the current president by name. Um, he talked about it being, it's been extraordinary times, dangerous times, etc. Um, so I think this, this is highly significant. Number one, Donald Trump himself is obviously highly annoyed at Barack Obama's intervention. He me he's mentioned it frequently on Twitter since that speech last week. In particular, uh, a kind of a row has been brewing about the economic figures. Uh, Obama has, has criticized essentially Donald Trump for taking credit for economic growth that was really entrained during his own presidency. He specifically referenced that during his speech. And it's significant that before Sarah Huckabee Sanders' press briefing on Monday here, um, they sent out a senior economic official to the press room to brief the media on Donald Trump's economic achievements and how, in fact, they had got even better since he came into the Oval Office. So this is obviously one um, one subject, very, very sensitive subject for Republicans, because after all, this is their one big card coming into November. The economy is doing very well. 
unemployment at record lows and the stock market is is still soaring ahead. Uh, so this is their big trump card, if you like, pardon the pun. And any idea that the, the Democrats would try and um, take, uh, you know, claim that victory for themselves is something that all Republicans, including Trump, will be railing against. But also, you're, you're right in that Obama's intervention here is interesting in terms of will he motivate Democratic voters? Um, what I think the feeling is, is that, uh, you know, Republican voters are not going to be swayed or independents maybe by Barack Obama, but perhaps Democratic voters who may not be, you know, really fired up to vote in November, that the reappearance of Barack Obama may try and reinvigorate them and may get that vote out again. Uh, so we are expecting him to intervene quite a bit in the next few months. He has indicated he's going to get involved in the midterm elections. He's going to be traveling to California. He's also may get involved with the whole issue of gerrymandering of districts. We see that in North Carolina and various states. That's one of his pet projects. So we could see him coming out uh, very strongly on that in the next few months. What does it say about the current options, uh, their current options, that the Democrats are, are wheeling out uh, the former president? Are they over-reliant on him or, or, or you know, is, is that a mm-hmm. risk for the party? Well, there is the issue that Democrats have not coalesced around one single candidate uh, for 2020 for the next presidential election campaign. The Democrats, in a sense, are still pretty split. We've seen this in the Democratic primaries in New York, where Joe Crowley lost his his seat in the primary. Um, We're seeing this this week. There is um, a battle for the Democratic primary in New York, where the current governor, Andrew Cuomo, is being uh, is facing off Cynthia Nixon, the actress, who's coming from a hard left uh, position. So the kind of Clinton-Sanders divide we saw in 2016 has not yet been resolved. In saying that, there are some names that are already out there, uh, you know, who may uh, put themselves forward in 2020. Interestingly, last week, we saw two, two of those names quite prominently appear. That was during the Supreme Court hearing for Brett Kavanaugh. Two Democrats in particular uh, were very vocal during that hearing, Kamala Harris from California and Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. Those two Democrats are widely rumoured to be considering a bid for 2020. And they were very vocal in criticising Kavanaugh uh, during that um, that confirmation hearing and, and got widespread TV coverage because those hearings were covered live on TV here in, 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 in the United States. So I think that's a real sign that they're looking uh, to contest this election. We've also got other names. Elizabeth Warren is very likely to want to run. Um, other names as well, you know, on the Sanders wing again. So I think that is the same issue that is facing Democrats. They haven't quite coalesced around what kind of candidate they want to run, a more centrist candidate or someone along the lines of the Bernie Sanders candidate who's running further left uh, politically. Uh, Finally, Suzanne, uh, you mentioned the Kavanaugh uh, hearing. Uh, Can you tell us how that's progressing and, and what kind of boost it would be for Trump if he's confirmed? Yeah, I think uh, Kavanaugh appeared before the Senate committee last week for four days. It it was a very tense hearing because uh, it was stopped before it was even started by protest by these two Democratic senators I mentioned over uh, the committee's failure to disclose documents relating to Kavanaugh's time working in the in the George W. Bush administration. Uh, there were huge protests both inside the chamber and outside uh, this, this committee room uh, during the week. Uh, so it was highly dramatic. In saying that, uh, Kavanaugh really escaped pretty unscathed. He was probed uh, quite aggressively at times, particularly about his views on abortion, on Roe versus Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court ruling on abortion, and also on issues to do with racial profiling, 
and also his views uh, on the the power of the president constitutionally. Um, but he managed to kind of successfully do what all Supreme Court nominees try to do, and that's say, say very little and try and indicate as little as possible about what their personal views are. And we heard the, the usual line, which is, you know, I will follow the law, I will be an independent voice, etc. So it looks like Kavanaugh got through pretty much unscathed. Um, Republicans have a majority, but oh, a small majority, but a majority nonetheless, um, and are going to back Kavanaugh, it seems, even though Democrats will vote against him. Um, they're hoping to um, move that through maybe by October to have him uh, a full vote on that. So he should be in situ well before uh, the midterm elections uh, when the next uh, court sitting, court term starts. So that would be a huge boost for Donald Trump going into the midterms. He's expected, Donald Trump is expected to do a lot of campaigning ahead of the midterms um, around the country. And no doubt the economy and his success in pushing through justice, not just in the Supreme Court, but on lower courts, would be something that he touts during these rallies in a bid to try and get out uh, the vote, essentially, in November. Suzanne Lynch in Washington, thank you for joining us. That was our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Now to Brexit, and Britain's Parliament returned after its summer break last week, but it's been difficult to hear anything other than the Brexit clock ticking. After the lull, in recent days we've been treated to Boris Johnson comparing the border backstop to a constitutional suicide vest. Michel Barnier seeming to offer hope with talk of a deal on the withdrawal agreement in six or eight weeks. And a former Brexit minister warning that 80 Tories would vote against Theresa May's coveted Chequers plan, parts of which have been rejected by the EU anyway. London editor Dennis Staunton joins me now to assess whether we are any further along the road to a Brexit deal as we enter a defining stage of the process. Dennis, I'm not sure how much changed over the summer, but this certainly seems to have become, at least from a British political point of view, a battle over checkers. Can you remind us what it is about that plan that's so unpalatable to the EU and to the Brexiteers? Well, checkers uh, was this deal which uh, Theresa May uh, hammered out with her cabinet in her country house in checkers before the summer break. And uh, she emerged on the Friday night kind of saying we're all united behind all of this. And this was uh, the idea was that uh, the the UK after Brexit would follow the EU rules and regulations for goods and agricultural products, but not for services. And so it would effectively be in the European single market for goods, not for services. And then there was a kind of a complicated arrangement for customs where there'd be a kind of a dual tariff depending on whether uh, a good, uh, you know, some product was going into the European Union or just passing through, you know, and just passing through the UK or if it was actually staying in the UK. So this was the idea. And it all seemed to be going fine for about 24 hours. And then suddenly um, uh, David Davis, her Brexit secretary, and then Boris Johnson, they both resigned saying that this would just uh, tie uh, Britain too closely to the European Union after Brexit, and they'd be following rules that they would have no hand in making and no role in uh, in creating. And meanwhile, the European Union, through Michel Barnier, the uh, EU chief negotiator, uh, didn't actually reject the proposal. They said that there are lots of interesting things in it, but uh, on the two main issues to do with the idea of single market access for goods only and not for services, and the customs proposal, he made clear that these are not acceptable, that they uh, would break the uh, fundamental principles of the single market and of the European Union. So in both of those cases, they said no. But what happened then was that Theresa May refused to let it die. 
and insisted throughout the summer that this plan was still alive and not quite dead yet. And what's happened now in the last few days since uh, the since Parliament came back is that the Brexiteers on the Conservative backbenchers have ramped up their uh, attacks on the Chequers proposal. And they appear to have made common cause with Michel Barnier because some of them were in Brussels last week and they emerged, Jacob Rees-Mogg, for example, emerged saying, uh, Michel Barnier and I, we both agree that Chequers is rubbish and that we need to come up with, uh, with another plan. And what the uh, Brexiteers would like to come up with is that uh, instead of going for this complicated and uh, rather close arrangement, that they simply have a, a free trade agreement rather like Canada has. And that uh, and so uh, and they do a, a withdrawal agreement, which would include some kind of deal on the border uh, in Northern Ireland, the border backstop. But that basically they just go for a free trade agreement rather than for this Chequers proposal. Now, the, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's uh, group, the European Research Group, or better known, I suppose, as the, as the Tory Brexiteers, um, they have pulled back on publishing their own plan, haven't they? And, and so maybe seemingly unable to agree on, on their own alternative. Uh, can, can you talk us through some of the dynamics in that group, Dara, and whether, um, you know, not clearly not all of them are happy with that, that idea of a Canada plus plus or whatever? Exactly. I think what's interesting about it, there's, there, you know, there are about, anywhere between 60 and 80 members of this group, the European Research Group, a group of backbenchers, conservative backbenchers, and they're all Brexiteers, but they don't all agree on everything. And so, for example, at one end of the spectrum, there are a few of them who'd be very keen just to crash out with no deal whatsoever, just uh, what they call, you know, WTO rules. So simply operate according to the World Trade Organization and, uh, and no special arrangement with the EU at all. And then there are others at the further, uh, at the opposite end, who actually think that there's some merit in the Chequers proposal and that maybe uh, Theresa May should be given a chance to see what she can get. And then in the middle, you've got people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, whose preference really is for a kind of a Canada-style deal, but that uh, would be happy to go for no deal rather than go for something like checkers if necessary. So that's where, so they're split. And they're also split about priorities. And one reason that um, that they held back from publishing this, uh, their own blueprint for, uh, uh, for a solution for the European Union uh, and for Brexit is that some of them wanted to put all kinds of unusual things into it. Like there was one proposal that they should have a kind of a, a nuclear Star Wars type thing, a kind of a, a nuclear defense shield rather like uh, the US has. And then that's uh, another one uh, that they should have a permanent expeditionary force for the Falklands, which would be able to, it's like a sort of a rapid response uh, force just in case anybody decided to invade the Falklands again like they did in 1982. So anyway, this all looked a bit mad. So they kind of decided they wouldn't do that. But what they would do instead is that tomorrow on Wednesday, they're going to publish their own proposal on the border backstop. And this is where something quite interesting is happening to do with the border backstop. Uh, what you had until now was that everybody from uh, Theresa May to Jacob Rees-Mogg in the Conservatives was saying that uh, the European Union's proposal for the backstop, which would keep uh, Northern Ireland in a single regulatory area with uh, the rest of Ireland, and so that would be within the EU's regulations and would also keep it effectively in the EU customs union, that this was completely unacceptable because it would uh, interfere with the constitutional integrity of the United Kingdom. 
Uh, in the last few months, Michel Barnier has been saying, well, you know, uh, we can talk about this and we can de-dramatize it. And maybe some of these phrases like a single regulatory area and Northern Ireland being part of the customs union uh, or the customs territory of the EU, maybe we can change that. And, you know, if we're talking about having checks uh, on goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, maybe those checks can be at English and Scottish ports and that you don't have any checks in Northern Ireland. And we won't have to bother checking anything going from Northern Ireland into Great Britain because we, the Europeans, don't care of what you have going into Britain. It's not our business. And so we could really relax about all of this. And uh, so far, the uh, the prime minister and the government has been saying, no, 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 this is still a, a huge problem. And one of their arguments, one of Theresa May's arguments against going for a simple free trade agreement is she says this doesn't solve the problem of the border. But what the Eurosceptics and Jacob Rees-Mogg are now starting to say is, well, as a matter of fact, Maybe we can work out something with Mr. Barnier about this border backstop. And what they propose, what they're going to propose tomorrow is expected to be something which is really quite close to what Michel Barnier is proposing. So that you have these checks at British ports, not at Northern Irish ports, but that you maybe allow some EU personnel there rather like you have, say, at the Eurostar. Uh, if you're going from London to Brussels or London to Paris, you go through your British passport control and then you immediately have a French uh, passport control behind that. And so that you and you have the same thing happening on the other side, that you could do something similar to that. And uh, and so today Downing Street said, oh, no, no, this would be uh, we still think this would be unacceptable. And that's the only way to deal with the border is through our checkers proposal. So a strange thing is happening that uh, it may be that by tomorrow you find that the arch Brexiteers are backing Barnier's backstop while the British government is saying, no, no, we can't accept it. If they do come up with a feasible proposal on the backstop, it obviously would put the government in a very difficult position, uh, surely, um, given given the, the distance between their current proposal and the EU. Yes, I think it does put, the, put them in a, a difficult position because really what Theresa May has been hoping for is that uh, she's got this, uh, you know, the Conservative Party conference at the very end of this month. And uh, at the end of next week, EU leaders are meeting in Salzburg for an informal meeting with no notes or no documents or anything. But they're going to talk about Brexit. And what she's hoping, hoping for is that after that meeting, that they'll send some signal saying that her Czechist proposal is still alive and is still viable, even if they don't agree with it. And so she can then go into the Conservative conference with that Czechist deal not quite dead. And that then in August, in October, when the the next proper European summit is there, then you kind of see what happens. But what the Brexiteers are saying is, well, actually, you know, if we can just solve this problem of the Northern Ireland backstop, then you can get a withdrawal agreement. And if you have a withdrawal agreement, it means that you, there's no fear of a no-deal Brexit because uh, it means that we've got a transition arrangement from March 2019 up to the end of 2020 where nothing changes. So there's no catastrophic cliff edge. And then we have we negotiate a free trade agreement. So what's the problem with that? And uh, and so, uh, you know, because in a way, one of the uh, one of the advantages that Theresa ha May has when she's pushing her Brexit agreement with her own party is to say the alternative to my Chequers proposal is no deal at all. And we already know that no deal is going to be a disaster and um, you know, it'll be a disaster for the economy and it would cause chaos. 
So if uh, the Brexiteers find a way around uh, avoiding no deal while going for a free trade agreement, that would actually be quite hard for Conservative MPs generally to vote against. So that if she, for example, were to find herself having to agree to that, I think that you would then find that she comes back to Parliament, say, with a withdrawal agreement and with a political declaration which will go for something like a free trade agreement with a few extras uh, to be negotiated, added on. And then uh, Labour would say they'll vote against it because they're going to vote against anything she brings back. But I think you would find that it would be very difficult for any Conservative MP, including the pro-European MPs, to reject that deal if the alternative was no deal. So, I mean, does that overall, does that does that make, make it appear as though Theresa, Theresa May's position could be strengthened in, in the short term? On, on this well, issue? no, I think it, it doesn't really, because in the short term, uh, her difficulty is that uh, if that anything that undermines the uh, the idea of checkers being the only show in town and the only option available is bad for her, because what the you know what the Brexiteers want to do is to uh, you know is to, to kill checkers right away. And uh, what she's trying to do is to keep it alive as long as she can, and particularly beyond the Conservative conference, so that she can go in at least with some semblance of a plan. I mean, I think, you know, Chequers is not going to survive contact with real negotiations in Brussels, but it may be that there is something that she hopes that she can get, which is still something better than a simple free trade agreement and involves more integration with the European single market. Uh, but if, uh, you know, and so I think that if the Brexiteers actually do come up with a formulation that could solve the problem of the backstop and could solve the problem of the withdrawal agreement, then I think that's not necessarily good news for her. Although in the long run, it probably does mean that it might be easier to find a deal that would find its way through Parliament. But none of this, I hasten to say, is in any way certain. And even, for example, what the Brexiteers are going to come up with tomorrow, I think it's unlikely to go all the way towards what Barnier is looking for and certainly probably won't go all the way towards what uh, the Irish government would regard as a satisfactory solution to the border. So I think there's plenty of uh, plenty of room for things to go wrong. The other issue, of course, the weekend was 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 Boris Johnson's uh, posturing, um, particularly uh, his unfortunate phraseology around a constitutional uh, suicide vest. Um, does does that represent any threat to, to Theresa May in 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 the short to medium term, or or basically is the leadership question off the table for now? I mean, there's there are obviously pressing deadlines ahead. I think it's uh, it's off the table for right now. But it can come back on at any moment so that, uh, you know, what what you find at Westminster is that uh, today we'll feel as if she seems to be secure until Christmas, we'll say, or until March when they leave the European Union. And so today, most people think she's secure until they leave uh, in March. But tomorrow something can happen at quiet prime minister's questions or whatever else that suddenly makes her position look much shakier and as you approach the conservative conference Boris Johnson is no there's no question that he is presenting himself as the alternative candidate now i think what happened at the weekend uh, there were two things that happened at the weekend one was uh, information about his personal life so that he and his wife announced that they were divorcing 
after 25 years. And the newspapers started publishing uh, stories about uh, his relationship with uh, a younger woman who he's been seen out and about with. So that's one part of it, which I think probably doesn't do him that much harm because uh, Boris Johnson has been known to have a disorderly personal life for you know for many uh, many years. Uh, on the, his statement about the use of you know comparing the border backstop to a suicide vest, it provoked a lot of outrage. Uh, some of it may be a bit overblown, but in a way it's not good for him because it sort of reminds people that he's a polarizing figure. A number of uh, conservative MPs have already said that if Boris Johnson becomes leader, they will leave the party. And with a majority, with no majority in Parliament, the idea that if you lost, say, up to a dozen Conservative MPs, uh, then it would be, it would mean that you you would lose the majority, the working majority that they have with with the DUP. And so that could be a problem for him because the way the system works is the MPs choose two candidates, and those two candidates then go before the broader Conservative Party membership. He, Boris Johnson, is way ahead among the party membership. But he's not necessarily ahead with the with the MPs, and he he's got a lot of enemies at Westminster, and so his problem is to get himself onto the ballot. I mean, I think whatever happens between now and March, the general feeling here is that uh, Theresa May will be ditched uh, as soon as Brexit is over, and then that the Conservative Party leadership contest will really become about what happens in the negotiations during the transition period. So that what you're going to have is when they leave some political declaration about the future arrangement and the future trade deal. And then uh, you, after that, for the next year or so, they'll be negotiating that deal. And on the one hand, you'll have somebody like Boris Johnson saying, we need to be as free as possible from Europe. And then on the other, you'll probably have somebody saying, uh, this is our biggest market. It's our closest market. We better not do anything crazy. And if that means that we have to follow some of their rules, then let's just do that. And so that's where, where, what I think we're, we're gearing up for now. Finally, Dennis, there were reports this, this week in, in some of the papers that trade union members have been growing keener on the idea of a second referendum, um, perhaps putting a bit more pressure on the Labour Party. I mean, is it conceivable that they could ever get to a position where they adopt that position or, or really are we a long way from that? No, I think we. I think they could. The current Labour position, and actually this is now the position of the Trade Union Congress as well since the, this week, uh, the current position is that uh, they uh, they want, uh, you know, if, if, if a deal is unacceptable, if Theresa May's deal is unacceptable, which they expect it will be, then what they want is a general election. And if they can't uh, have a general election and they won't be able to, then they're open to the option of a second referendum. And so uh, so I think that you could find that Labour, and in fact, I would say that in a way, the logical conclusion of Labour's position and the development of its position is that they end up calling for a second referendum. The problem is that it's Parliament that has to call for a second referendum, and it has to be a bill, a government bill. So the government actually has to propose, uh, introduce a bill legislating for a second referendum. And that's something that could be difficult. And so there are a lot of hurdles, even if Labour were to, to choose, even if, in fact, a majority in the House of Commons wanted to have uh, a second referendum, it's still not quite certain that you'd actually be able to get it. Because to have the referendum, you have to have a bill and they have to agree on what the question is. Is the question, do we accept Theresa May's deal or 
not? And if not, what does that mean? Does it mean we stay in the European Union uh, or does it mean we leave without a deal? Do you have uh, three options? Do you have two options and then uh, a further two options if they choose one option? You know, do you have two ballot papers? There are all kinds of complicated things like that. And finding agreement in a terribly divided parliament, a parliament divided in all different directions about Brexit, I think is something that's going to be very hard. Dennis Staunton in London, thank you for joining us. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.